Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Banter Podcast, episode 24. This is your host, Ben Kern. I'm here with my co-host, Mike Luciano. Mike, my friend, how are you this week? Ben, I've been dejoyed. Why? Who has dejoyed you? Well, uh, well Louis DeJoy, the Postmaster General. I was expecting an Amazon package via United States Postal Service yesterday with a new microphone that I was going to use on this very podcast, and it never came. And it's supposed to come today, I guess, hasn't come yet. So I'm just the latest American who has been DeJoyed, whose wonderful cost-cutting measures at the Postal Service have really put out a lot of people. Um, and obviously, like, I don't care very much. This is a very trivial, you know, a new microphone is a very trivial thing. Well, thankfully, I'm not waiting for medication, for example. A lot of people rely on the post office to deliver their medication on, the, on time, their social security checks on time, to deliver their bill payments on time. So I, I joke a little bit, but we have to keep in mind that there are people all across the country who, for them, the post office is a an absolutely vital part of their lives. And that's something, it's something we'll get into later on in the show. I'm a little put out. Completely understandable. I mean, you know, given the, the you know, the, the looming threat of uh, a collapse of the post office, before november i think you're 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 quite you you know your feelings are, are are completely understandable i mean we are actually about to enter into the last how many weeks is it about it's like 10 weeks to go now to the election uh 10 weeks left of this absolute horror show hopefully you know and i think everyone's kind of on edge everyone's kind of nervy i think people are having a hard time and any kind of minor slight like getting late post is going to tip people over the edge Exactly. Uh, but don't forget, even after the election, there is a 78-day period between the election <laughs> and Inauguration Day. And during that time, Trump is just going to do whatever he can do. If he loses or is losing, he's going to do whatever he can to cast doubt on the results. So this brings us to how we go about stopping that, and that is by electing Joe Biden. And the Democrats had the first ever virtual convention. And uh, I would like to hear what your thoughts on it were, Ben. I mean, it was very unusual. It was kind of, I mean, a lot of the speeches were, they were good, but you wonder like, all right, what would this sound like with, with a crowd? Right. I mean, I think that some people benefited from, some of the speakers benefited from it and some of the speakers did not. So I, overall, I thought that it was a, a triumph, you know, I mean, for, and for two reasons, I think it was a triumph because of um, Obama's speech and, and for, because of Biden's speech. I thought, um, you know, they were absolutely fantastic. I think they both, both of them gave speeches that the Democratic Party and, and um, you know, voters who are maybe on the fence, they needed to hear. You know, uh, to really understand what what we're up against going into November, and to 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 sort of, you know, I think Biden's job was really to reassure everybody that, like, you know, he's the man for the job. He really he's drew, drew a contrast with between himself and Donald Trump. I th I thought that um, Kamala Harris's speech was okay. I I thought it was fine. I think she would have done better with an audience. Uh, I don't think she's the best speaker out there. 
Uh, I think she's good, but I don't think she she doesn't. Obviously, you know, it was a bit of a hard act to kind of go up against, uh, particularly Obama, who is probably like the most talented politician, at least in our generation, um, for a very, very long time. So I think she, you know, there was maybe a bit of overshadowing there. And there's no knock on on Kamala Harris. I think she's obviously, you know, but I, I feel her skill set is more suited towards kind of debate and interrogation, you know. So I think she's going to really shine when she comes to debate against Pence. But I think as a speaker, you know, it was okay. It was fine. It was, you know, not, nothing wrong with it. But I thought that Obama's speech was really, really, really fantastic. Uh, and this is what Jonathan Chapra, he said, here is an American president warning that American democracy may not survive his immediate successor. Obama has always maintained a, pr- a preternatural calm. Throughout his eight years in office, he was gently mocked as a Vulcan, chided for his lack of urgency and emotion, always underreacting to the latest developments while everybody else lost their head. This is the first time I, ever, I have ever seen him express fear. And uh, yeah, that's what that's exactly what I saw as well. I saw there was an urgent message from Obama, like Obama was, he's, he's been shaken up badly, um, particularly in the last couple of months, I think, with what's happening with the uh, with the with the post office, and um, you know, I thought what he said about Trump was, I mean, it was pretty brutal. I have sat in the Oval Office with both of the men who are running for president. I never expected that my successor would embrace my vision or continue my policies. I did hope, for the sake of our country, that Donald Trump might show some interest in taking the job seriously. That he might come to feel the weight of the office and discover some reverence for the democracy that had been placed in his care. But he never did. For close to four years now, he has shown no interest in putting in the work, no interest in finding common ground, no interest in using the awesome power of his office to help anyone but himself and his friends. No interest in treating the presidency as anything but one more reality show that he can use to get the attention he craves. Donald Trump hasn't grown into the job because he can't. And the consequences of that failure are severe. 170,000 Americans dead. Millions of jobs gone. While those at the top take in more than ever. Our worst impulses unleashed. Our proud reputation around the world badly diminished. And our democratic institutions threatened like never before. Yeah, that was very striking. That's obviously Obama has taken little subtle jabs at Trump for the most part when he does criticize his successor. But his convention speech was definitely the most forceful rebuke of Trump that we have heard from him. And that line where he says Trump hasn't grown into the job because he can't. No truer words have ever been spoken. At the beginning of the administration, whenever Trump would temporarily exhibit quote-unquote presidential behavior for like five minutes, you would have pundits even on the left sometimes say, today Donald Trump became president, or he gets it, or something like that, only to have Trump 
almost immediately revert back to who he actually is, who he's always been, and who he will always be. And so Obama saying he hasn't grown into the job because he can't, it was just dead on. Yeah, yeah, it was it was the absolutely sort of uh, devastating critique of, of Trump. And, and yeah, I mean, this is exactly what everybody, you know, what the same people and what the concerned observers have always said about this guy, is that he's not capable of doing this job. He's not capable of showing empathy. He's not capable of running a rational, stable, sane government. He's not capable of organizing or leading people. It's not because he doesn't want to. It's because he can't, right? There, there, there's a difference there, you know, but someone who's easily distracted and just needs to kind of focus. If Trump, fo- what you want to worry about is if Trump does focus. A focus Trump is even more dangerous than than what we have already. You know, this is why I think Obama's words were so powerful, is that he's basically, yeah, he's laying it out. He's saying, like, we've elected a sociopath, a a kind of insane sociopath, and to expect him to do anything other than create disaster is just basically naive. It's ignorant if you think that that's going to happen. You know, so I, I, you know, and Obama was basically, he was, he was begging people. He was literally saying, don't let them take away your democracy. Could you conceive of this happening, you know, in America, like over the last, I don't know, hundred years for, for, for a former president to be making a speech before an election and begging people to vote, not just for, not, not for Biden's policies, but to preserve democracy itself, right? That's where we are. I think we're kind of used to feeling, um, we're kind of numbed now to the insanity of Trump's presidency. You know, it's just kind of nonstop, endless stream of kind of, of, of mania and, and just like WWE style theatrics. But this, I don't know, it really, it was very, um, uh, it was a stark thing from Obama, really, really stark. And and it really, you know, the fact that he, a former president, is begging people to vote to preserve American democracy is that was chilling. I'll just echo something you said. It is a good thing that Trump is lazy and incompetent. So he he's incapable of focusing his attention on one thing for any amount of time. He's not particularly driven. The guy's just not, he's not focused enough to become the kind of authoritarian leader he admires in a Putin, for example, or a Kim Jong-un or a Duterte. So what's happening, what we're seeing is kind of like just this ham-handed attempt at authoritarianism that has come up against these guardrails in American democracy that have been somewhat eroded, but are still there. But a more competent person in Trump's position would have just blown right through them far more competently. So I, I want to know your hear your thoughts on, on Biden's speech, his acceptance speech on Thursday. I think, you know, going into it, Donald Trump has set a narrative where Biden is basically senile, right? He calls him Sleepy Joe. He's called him Slow Joe. And this is kind of a dangerous game to play because it sets the bar so low for Biden, right? So that means 
all Biden really has to do to beat the expectations that Trump is setting for him is to be semi-coherent. And Biden has been more than semi-coherent. His acceptance speech was excellent. And yeah, he was reading off a teleprompter, but the guy hit all the right notes. You know, compassion, empathy, anger, loss, optimism, whatever it was, he nailed it. You know, he, he doesn't have the, the 95 mile an hour four seam fastball he used to. But, you know, his acceptance speech was a perfectly thrown 91 mile an hour two seam fastball with a lot of movement on it. I know you're British, Ben, so you don't really do the baseball thing. Well, I understand maybe there's cr- a couple- cricket analogies only. <laughs> I thought he gave a, great, a very good speech, maybe even a great speech. I wonder how it would have played in front of an audience. It very well could have brought the house down. And it was just nice to be reminded of what a president is supposed to sound like. So I, but I would like to know your thoughts on it. Yeah, I, I, you know, I basically what you said. I mean, it was. I th- there was a great. Um, tw- there was a tweet by uh, Matthew Iglesias yesterday uh, during the speech, and he, I thought he summed it up very well. He said, "I think a lot of people on here experienced Biden's campaign exclusively, exclusively through the deceptively edited clips that both leftist Twitter and MAGA Twitter spent a lot of time sharing." So, it, you know, if you spend a lot of time on Twitter. And on social media, you're going to get a kind of a very distorted picture of of anyone, really, of Trump, of Biden, of any of the political candidates. And I think that that's what's happened with Biden is that th- there's been a sort of there's been this um, smear campaign going on by the far left and and the right to paint Biden as this kind of senile, doddering old man. And that's you know, like you said, I mean, the the pro- like, I mean, look, I, to be perfectly honest, like, but yeah, Biden is not what he was twenty years ago, ten years ago, right? He's seventy seven, going on seventy eight. You know, I, he clearly he clearly has. I think you know, his his gaffes have got a bit more. You know, and I think that, from what I understand, it could be to do with his stuttering. Um, that I, that we I actually spoke to a neuroscientist about this. Uh, who pointed out that, but you know, Biden's stutter is one of the reasons why he sometimes appears to be lost because he can't, you know, he he knows what he wants to say, but he can't get the word out. So he that he tries to, he has to come up with a different. He will then say something else to to cover up for the fact that he can't say the word that he wants to say because of his stutter. Um, and that you know, it's possible that that's getting worse. He's less able to control it um, as he gets older. You know, so I. But like you said, he's perfectly. He's fine, right? It was like um, before the Bernie debate. I had lots of friends saying, "Oh, this is going to be a train wreck." Um, you know, Bernie's going to destroy Biden. It's going to be a, like a massacre. Let, let, why don't they should do more debates so that like they need to have a series of debates so that we can really see whether Biden's up to it or not. And and the, and basically what happened was he was fine. He was absolutely fine. I think Sanders is a better debater than Biden. I thought that Sanders probably won the debates, but like not by much. And look, to be perfectly honest and people who listen to this podcast in March and April, I was one of the people saying, you know, I wasn't saying Biden was senile, but I was saying like, you know, clearly the guy, he, he's in a cognitive decline He's not as quick as he used to be. And I wanted to see that one-on-one debate because he did not have very good debate performances when he was you know, up there on stage with eight, 10 other people, whatever it was. 
I think not being on the campaign trail every single day, you know, just doing that grueling grind every day, I think that's done him a world of good. It's taxing enough when you're 40. But when you're in your 70s, it's it's got to be doubly or triply taxing. So I think not having to be on the campaign trail and just resting up, I, I think it has really helped him. And at the end of the day, slow Joe, sleepy Joe, you know what? Even if that's true, if that were true, I don't care. I don't care. We have to get the maniac out of the White House. I'll take sleepy Joe over maniac narcissist Donald any day of the week. Any day of the week. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, but look, I thought I also thought that there were some key parts to the speech that to, to Biden's speech that I thought were just I mean, I mean, that really left like a kind of a lasting impression. Um, and one of them uh, was um, uh, the reason he gave for why he he ran in the first place, which I thought was um, one of the most powerful parts of the speech. Just a week ago yesterday was the third anniversary of the events in Charlottesville. Close your eyes. Remember what you saw on television. Remember seeing those neo-Nazis and Klansmen and white supremacists coming out of fields with lighted torches veins bulging, spewing the same, same anti-Semitic bile heard across Europe in the 30s. Remember the violent clash that ensued between those spreading hate and those with the courage to stand against it. And remember what the president said when asked? He said there were, quote, very fine people on both sides. It was a wake-up call for us as a country. And for me, a call to action. At that moment, I knew I'd have to run. Because my father taught us that silence was complicity. And I could never remain silent or complicit. For me, that was like, okay, it drew a real contrast between himself and Trump. And it kind of, it, it really defined like what we're up against. Like everyone opposed to Donald Trump has called themselves the resistance, right? And like, and I think never is that was that made clearer than after Charlottesville, right? That the guy refused to condemn neo Nazis and Klansmen, people people carrying tiki torches, right? This is it was just like the most shameful episode. I mean, there's a lot with Trump, right? There's a lot, but the guy couldn't condemn neo Nazis, um you know and i think that biden's like him underlining that was just like really that 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 to me was like the sort of the best part of the speech uh, and really made you kind of see why biden is doing this because you know i've i i've heard from several people that biden never really wanted to run in the first place like he's doing he only ran because he a was uh, he was he was basically urged by by people around him to say look look we've run the numbers and you're the only person who can build a coalition big enough to beat him. I don't think he's ever really wanted to do this. I don't think he wanted to be. I think he'd had enough. If that's true, and I think if that is true, it just like he you know Biden is for all his flaws and there are many. He's a, he's a, he's a decent man. He he has compassion and empathy, and I think that you know when you contrast that with Trump who has none. Uh, you know that speech was a was a was a huge hit. You know, it just made you like remember. You're like, okay, this is what a president 
should sound like. This is what it could be like. You know, this is how we could view ourselves as a as opposed to this kind of raging lunatic who just exemplifies the absolute worst characteristics of of you know of, of humanity. He's literally the epitome of everything bad about America. Everything, the greed, the narcissism, the ego, the vanity, the hatred, you know, the fear, the the um, the abuse towards others, the the racism, you know, the misogyny. Don't forget the conspiracy theories. He was asked about QAnon. Oh, God. Week, and he said, I don't know much about the movement other than I understand they like me very much, which I appreciate. I heard that these are people who love our country. These yes. are the people who believe that there is a global pedophile ring of which a lot of prominent Democratic politicians are part of, and that Hillary Clinton was in part running, running part of this pedophile ring out of a pizza parlor, which prompted some QAnon nut to go there with a gun to try to uncover the ring. I mean, have you? That? Yeah, there's, a, there's. A, we don't need. We, we don't need to get into this. But I was. I've gone down the rabbit hole this week on this stuff. And but yeah, look. I mean, back to the the convention stuff. I thought excellent. I mean, you couldn't have asked for more from Joe Biden. He's a real candidate. He's got a. You know, he's he's no dummy. He can give a very very good speech. He gets what's happening uh, to the country. And I think that you know, it's made me more confident going into November. For sure. And we know Trump will continue to implode because he's incompetent, he's lazy, and he says he surrounds himself with the best people, but he actually doesn't. And that brings us to Stephen K. Bannon, former Trump campaign manager and White House aide. Steve is in a bit of legal trouble. You might remember back in 2018, there were a lot of conservatives upset that Trump couldn't get his border wall built. And so one enterprising young man named Brian Colfage, who's a triple amputee, he lost his limbs in Iraq. He took it upon himself to start a GoFundMe to raise money to build the wall, or at least part of the wall. And the group was called, it's a nonprofit called We Build the Wall. Uh, we Build the Wall raised more than $25 million. They had thousands of people across the country giving them money. But based on the indictments being handed down here in this case, it sounds like the folks who were running this should have called it We Build Our Bank Accounts because there was a lot of self-dealing allegedly going on here with the people involved, uh, one of whom was Steve Bannon. So prosecutors allege that Colfage took more than $350,000 in donations and spent it on home renovations, boat payments, a luxury SUV, a golf cart, jewelry, and cosmetic surgery. And as for Bannon, U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York says, Bannon used nearly $1 million of the $25 million the group raised for personal expenses. And so Bannon was arraigned on Thursday. He pleaded not guilty to charges of wire fraud conspiracy and money laundering conspiracy. He was released on a $5 million bond. So no jail for Bannon right now. And this week in saying the quiet part out loud, I have a clip here. I believe it's from 2019. It's a telethon being run by We Build the Wall. 
And there was, I guess, a live stream featuring Kofage and Bannon. This is an actual clip from the telethon. Welcome back. This is Stephen K. Bannon. We're off the uh, coast of Saint-Tropez in uh, southern France in the Mediterranean. We're on the million-dollar yacht of Brian Kofage. And uh, Brian Kofage, he took all that money from Build the Wall. No, we're actually <laughs> in Sunland Park, New Mexico. That is That really is the quiet part out loud. But my favorite part of this whole thing is the description of Bannon's arrest. So he was arrested in Long Island Sound on a 150-foot, $35 million yacht owned by a Chinese billionaire. And Bannon was arrested not by the FBI, but by U.S. postal inspectors. The New York Times says, Working with the Coast Guard, special agents from the United States Attorney's Office in Manhattan, and federal postal inspectors boarded the yacht off to off Westbrook, Connecticut. Yeah, I've been to Westbrook, lovely little town with a nice little beach. The official said that Mr. Bannon, 66, was on deck drinking coffee and reading a book when the raid occurred. And you think, why postal inspectors? Well, you might remember, and I don't know if this is why, but I'm just putting it out there. You might remember Attorney General Bill Barr fired the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, Jeffrey Berman, back in late June. And we covered that at the time. On a Friday night in June, Barr announced that Berman would be stepping down. And Berman issued his own statement saying that was news to him and that he's not stepping down. So Barr fired him. But before Berman left, he was able to ensure that his successor was Audrey Strauss, who was already working for the SDNY, as opposed to what Barr wanted to do at the time. And that was have the U.S. attorney for New Jersey oversee the Southern District of New York. So there's an interesting passage in the New York Times reporting on this. And it says, Attorney General William P. Barr was briefed on the investigation several months ago, according to a Justice Department official. And the prosecutor's office in Manhattan gave him notice that the indictment would be unsealed on Thursday. Now, presumably, several months ago is before that day in late June when Berman was removed. And you have to wonder if it had something to do with the investigation into Bannon that by that point Barr was in all likelihood aware of. I, I'm not saying these are related, but they very well could be, uh, especially in an administration like this, because the prospect of Trump's former campaign manager and White House aide, who knows a lot about what the campaign did, about what this administration has done, the prospect of him being arrested, knowing what he knows, could be a very dangerous situation for Trump. And you really just have to wonder if the Berman firing was an attempt by Barr to thwart the Bannon case so Bannon would not be in a position where prosecutors are putting the screws to him and possibly providing information about Trump in other cases that could that could lead to investigations and potentially an indictment. Interesting. I mean, like everything with the Trump administration and anybody associated associated with the Trump administration, it has that that whiff of criminality. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if there was, you know, a, a very sort of vast attempt to cover this up. So yeah, it, you know, I don't know what to make of it. I'm not, I, I I don't know, but. Um, yeah, look, also, with the whole Bannon 
story i think it's like uh i mean it's like the least surprising news ever right that steve bannon was trying to rip off maga idiots right and and it's amazing that they don't seem to understand a lot of these maga morons don't really understand what's happening here is that they are being played they're being played by these guys for the fools that they are right they're being they're being used and manipulated by the Steve Bannons and the Donald Trumps to enrich themselves and to kind of to rig the political system to enrich, to enrich themselves and their buddies. So this is like you know just further proof that these people who have been elected, these uh, the Trump people, are the sort of scum of the earth. I think it was uh, Howard Stone who said this about Trump: is that basically like Trump supporters, Trump wouldn't let any of these people into his hotels. Right. Let let alone, um, you know, it, it, let alone spend any time with them, right? Or actually have any genuine concern for them, you know. And I think that Steve Bannon, Steve Bannon's no dummy, so he clearly saw an opportunity to rip off some stupid Trump supporters, you know. So least surprising story ever, really, but very welcome. Um, and also, I think it's worth pointing out that one of the reasons why Trump's campaign turned around in 2016 is because Steve Bannon took over and, and turned around what was a complete disaster of a campaign and, and kind of eked out, a uh, brought some discipline, brought messaging, um, kept Trump focused, kind of turned the whole thing around. And I think that really Bannon is the only person who's capable of doing that with Trump. You know, for whatever reason, he is, he's like a sort of a, he's like the dark overlord, right? He does, he, he's not, he's not stupid and he does understand how to manipulate Trump and, and Trump supporters. And with him, you know, um, if, <laughs> with him sitting in jail, I think uh, it makes the population that much safer from a second term of Donald Trump. I hope you're right. You know, they really went about this scam all wrong. They set up a GoFundMe and just solicited donations, and they said, give us money, we're going to build the wall. What they should have done, if they wanted to do this grift, is they should have first created an LLC and call it a consulting firm. Then they should have created and registered a super PAC with the Federal Elections Commission. They then should have solicited donations online saying, we're going to spend this money on behalf of candidates who are pro-wall, and we're going to give this to organizations who are pro-wall, this, that, and the other thing, right? And campaign against candidates who are anti-wall. Watch the donations roll in, and then funnel your donations into the LLC that you created and just say that your LLC is consulting your super PAC at the same time. That is exactly how it goes with a lot of these scam super PACs. I mean, it's not very different from what We Build the Wall was doing, but they, like, these scam packs aren't getting prosecuted. So, like, that's where Bannon, they, they could have just totally, you know, added, like, another extra step or two, and they could have gotten away with it. Like, and I just want to take the time to mention Scott Dworkin and the Democratic Coalition. You've probably seen that guy's tweets and their tweets, you know, asking for money. He's got a lot of followers. He just tweets all day. Ask for money to spend. Help us flip the Senate. Help us flip the White House. Yada, yada, yada. You know where most of that money goes? It goes to something called Bulldog Consulting Group or, or Bulldog Finance Group, which is an LLC that Scott Dworkin runs that has no other clients other than the Democratic Coalition. So basically, Scott Dworkin is running the super PAC that is soliciting donations taking those donations and giving them to Scott Dworkin's consulting firm, quote unquote, consulting firm. 
because there's no consulting going on. But so really Jesus. all Bannon had to do. Yeah, no, I know. And way too many people retweet that guy and interview that guy. And they have no idea what he is doing with the money. But it's you go to OpenSecrets.com or OpenSecrets.org and you type in Scott Dworkin, type in the Democratic Coalition, which, by the way, sounds official, doesn't it? Like, oh, I'm donating to the Democratic Party. No, you're you're donating to some bald, bearded little troll who is taking the money from like and most of the donations are like under they're non-itemized. They're like under twenty dollars or twenty five dollars mm. or whatever it is. So he doesn't have to like list who who's donating to him. So he's taking money from people who think they are donating to get Trump out of office and to flip the Senate. And he's just he's just funneling it to his own consulting firm. And it really fucking pisses me off. <laughs> anyway, I didn't mean to I didn't mean to go on a tangent here, but this seemed is like a apt place to mention that. But that's where that's what Steve Bannon could have done, because apparently the, the FEC doesn't give a shit. Do you think the right is easier to rip off than the left? Uh, who are more gullible? I don't know. Like it's 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 a. Uh... I think the Trump people, I mean, anybody who put money into that wall thing, I mean, you've got to be a complete moron. Yeah, I think I think they're, that's different. If someone's saying, hey, I run a super PAC and, uh, you know, I fight for Democratic causes. OK, well, I've seen this before. Like a lot of there are a lot of Democratic super PACs out there. Most of them actually do spend money on mm. behalf of candidates, whereas the wall thing, it's like, all right, we're going to build the wall ourselves. And that immediately raises all kinds of questions like. Whose property are you going to build this wall on? Yeah, where are you going to get permission? Where are you going to get planning permission? Who's going to build it? Which contract are you hiring? You know what I mean? What's the what's the sort of uh, you have to have a plan in terms of in, in how how to build it? You have to have engineers. I mean, there's a whole list of things you need to do before you build anything in this country. You know, and you'd want to see some 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 very 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 detailed proposition uh, proposals before you put any money into it. You know, but you know, luckily for them, most of the Trump supporters probably can't read um, or find reading boring. Um, so you know, it's, 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 so it's an easy way. Hey, listen, I have—I don't care about offending Trump people anymore. I'm—I'm I'm over it. I don't care. I'm not. Uh, I have no uh, compunction whatsoever. I've got <laughs> insulting Trump Trump people who I think are a bunch of illiterate racists. Uh, and, and yes, you can quote me on that. Can we talk about Matt Taibbi and his? We con- can continued descent into whatever it is he's descending into we can yeah yeah he he really has uh, he really has shamed himself yet again so and i would preface this by saying like i was a big tybee fan for a long time like if i saw that a new piece of his and rolling stone had dropped i would stop whatever i was doing and i would go and read it because it would just be informative very colorful unrelenting jabs at whoever his target was. I mean, he's done a lot of good reporting on the the Great Recession and what caused that, our criminal justice system, just a lot of, and I own a couple of his books. I've gone to a couple of his book signings. And so it's just been really disappointing to see him just become this, oh, Democrats suck, Democrats suck, Democrats suck. Like, Democratic establishment, I agree. They suck. I don't think Joe Biden should be anywhere near this nomination. Agreed. But you know what? This is what we got now. And this is the only way we can get out of this fucking dystopia. But over the last couple of years, you know, his mentions are full of these extreme Bernie people and the Glenn Greenwald types and the Jimmy Dore types. And he's really 
leaned into this cottage industry of leftists who they spend the bulk of their time criticizing the people who are out of power, i.e. the Democrats, than the people who actually hold the power, Trump. It's like the, the biggest problem in the country isn't Trump. It's liberals who thought Trump is a, a Russian asset. Taibbi reached a peak a few days ago, and he wrote a piece. It's behind a paywall, but he wrote a piece in his newsletter talking about the fuckery at the post office. And it's just... It's just wild. I'll just read a segment from it. Almost immediately, Tejoy began implementing a series of moves that seemed designed to reduce the efficiency of the post office from removing 20% of letter sorting machines to moving or removing large quantities of mailboxes. Then, on July 29th, the Postal Service appears to have sent a letter to multiple states warning that mail-in ballots might not re- be received on time to be counted because the state's deadlines are incompatible with the Postal Service's delivery standards. This was followed by Trump going on Fox and announcing he was unwilling to spend money to keep funding the post office as part of a COVID-19 relief package, saying, quote, they want $25 billion. If they don't get it, that means you can't have universal mail-in voting because they're not equipped to have it, end quote. Even by Trumpian standards, Taibbi continues, this was a semi-crazy thing to say out loud. It gave outlets like The Week the ammo to say Trump was sandbagging the post office to prevent Americans from voting by mail. The logic is simple. About 72% of Democrats say they're at least somewhat likely to vote by mail compared to 22% of Republicans. A slowdown of the post office means a torpedo in the hull of the Biden campaign. But none of this, Taibbi says, means the Trump de joy story isn't serious. It just means that Trump is not the first person to try to gut the U.S. Postal Service. What the hell, Matt? This is like the biggest non sequitur. He actually acknowledges, yes, Trump is fucking with the post office to thwart mail-in voting, which is likely to help Republicans. But Trump's not the first president to do this. What? Like, yes, the post office has been fucked with for a long time. That law that the Republican-controlled government passed in 2005 or 6, mandating the post office fund the pensions of retirees like 75 years out. Yeah, that was messed up. But this is the president of the United States coming right out and saying, I don't want to fund the post office because of mail-in voting. And he also, and Tybee points out like there were pictures going, viral pictures going around of mailboxes that were in junkyards and blah, blah, blah. And people were wrongly posting them as evidence that this is part of the voter suppression effort when in reality they were just being repainted or replaced or whatever it is. Yes. But the point is, Matt, that Donald Trump has announced that he's going to do whatever he can to stop mail-in voting or diminish it greatly as to increase his chances for re-election. I mean, you've also, you've got to wonder what goes goes through his mind, right? When he's thinking of story selection as well. So let's just, let's just, you know, let's, let's forget the, the sort of ins and outs of the actual story, uh, which are pretty clear in, in my view. Um, but let's think about like the story selection, right? So this is what Tybee is focusing on. Okay, in the lead up to the election, rather than, let's say, uh, look at Trump's um, attempt to destroy American democracy, uh, constantly lie about the coronavirus, um, 
and ensure that you know more Americans die on a daily basis than do in a month in 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 other countries around the world, right? Rather than focus on any of this stuff, Bybee is focused on countering. I don't know what he sees as mainstream democratic narratives, right? Or, or uh, presumptions or assumptions, right? That he wants to he what he wants to um, show that you know uh, basically the Democrats or the centrist the centrist Democrats that he hates so much are just as bad, or they're the per- they're the people that we should be, really be watching, right? As opposed to the guy trying to burn the country down. It's this bizarre preoccupation with 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 centrists and moderate democrats that um you know, people like uh, matt taibbi and glenn greenwald seem to have right that that they can they seem to completely ignore what's happening and you know the 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 enemy then becomes joe biden like look you don't have to like joe biden you have to think the guy is great right but he's not the fucking enemy right he's literally the only hope that we've got of preserving American democracy. If you think that the the American democracy will survive another four years of Trump, you're sadly mistaken. Like you, you're crazy. Right? You haven't been paying attention. But yet, Tybee and Greenwald don't seem to pay any attention to this whatsoever. It's it's as if they don't exist. I mean, I had my own surreal experience this week of, uh, oh yeah, but last week in fact of arguing with a friend of mine, who is a it's you know he's far left, and. It's almost like he doesn't he doesn't accept right that the Trump administration is the major threat here. It's the it's the centrist liberals that are constantly constantly selling everybody out. They're the real reason why uh, we can't defeat the Republicans and have a leftist utopia, is because of the centrist Democrats, right, or the moderate Democrats. I mean, look, like it's we're in an emergency here. Like this is a disaster. I don't have to like think Biden doesn't have to be your first choice here, but you surely you can recognize that this is, you know, this is a, a an actual legitimate emergency, but, but Taibbi doesn't. And, and, you know, I, I can't, I don't even bother reading him anymore. I stopped reading him. Um, you know, he spends most of his time tweeting about Russiagate still, he's still obsessing over Russiagate. He still talks about it incessantly on his Twitter feed and breaks stories about why Russiagate was a, was a democratic hoax, right? Even even though even though it, it it clearly wasn't. I mean, you'd have to be a you'd have to be willfully ignorant or blind to you know ninety percent of the evidence uh, that that shows conclusively that that Trump campaign was was uh, uh, coordinating and and uh, constantly in contact with Russian agents. Right. It was I mean, I, I don't know anybody, anybody smart who doesn't believe that, that there's something extremely fishy going on. The title of the piece was The Press Cries Wolf, as if the president saying, I don't want mail in voting and I'm not going to fund mail in voting. I'm suing the state of Nevada to stop them from automatically mailing every registered voter a ballot. Apparently, all of that is part of the press crying wolf. And, and Taibbi, he calls this, he, he invented a new term for this. He said it's no non-story. So he's acknowledging not quite that it's a story, but he's saying that it's no non-story, whatever the hell that means. But look, Taibbi is stuck. He has either purposely or unintentionally cultivated an audience that regards the Democratic Party as irredeemable 
And basically the same thing as the Republican Party, basically the same thing as Trumpism. And if he produces content that runs counter to that, the people who subscribe to his newsletter, the people who read him, the people who follow him on Twitter, they're not going to like that. They're going to unfollow him. They're going to unsubscribe. It's not like he can easily flip back to what he was, you know, and what he used to be. He was never a mainstream political journalist. And that's part of what I liked about him. That's what a lot of people liked about him. But he has really done a lot of damage to his reputation. And look, I Taibi can obviously he can write whatever he wants. He can tweet whatever he wants. He can podcast whatever he wants. One of the more annoying things as a writer, and we'd all occasionally get this uh, at the banter. You know, we would have some commenter or somebody tweeting at the at us, basically telling us that we shouldn't have written this. We should have written something else. You know, as our our late friend and colleague Ches Pazienza once told me. You know, these people, I'm going to write what I want to write. I'm not their fucking jukebox. So I get it. Like, they, you can write what you, you can write, whatever you want to write. But when it's just an unrelenting onslaught against the opposition party, when we have this malignant narcissist in the White House, you come across as very tone deaf. And like you said, we have an emergency and we need all hands on deck. And look, I have. I have no love for the DNC. I have no love for Joe Biden. But the only chance we have at getting out of this emergency is putting Joe Biden in the White House. And then once he gets there, pressure him from the left to do the things that we want to get done. So by trying to tear down Biden and the Democrats in this context, it only helps Trump. And if that's what you want to do, fine. But I'm with you, Ben. Like, I don't I don't read his stuff anymore. I just happen to see that come across my my Twitter feed. Somebody from the week, Ryan Cooper, he flagged it. Another inst- another example of how he is just completely transformed from a, you know, from a respectable journalist into this, you know, favorite of the Jimmy Dore left and of, of Trumpers who can point to him and say, ah, see, even this liberal agrees that liberals suck. The Steve Schmidt effect, if you will. And, it, it, you know, it is a shame because Toby was a great journalist. You know, I think he, you know, he, he really did a fantastic job of, like, you know, the, after the financial crisis. I mean, I, re, I like you, I got, I bought, I have most of his books. Uh, yeah, incredibly impressed. I've, I've spoken to Toby a couple of times. I've, I, I've interviewed him, did a really interesting interview with him. But he just seems to have, yeah, I don't know what it is. Maybe that's just where he makes his money now. You know, that's how you, which just seems bizarre. I don't know why you would, why you would why you would do that but i think it's you know look i think it's kind of irresponsible i get i get it you know like you said you can write what you want to write you can say what you want to say you can do what you want to do i think that you know but that's part of the reason why he parted way with rolling stone at least on the on the digital side i don't know if he's still writing for the magazine but he doesn't publish on the website anymore well actually he he did just he does publish periodically yeah, I mean, I mean, um, you know, he switched, but he switched full time to writing online. I think maybe he, maybe he got pushed back from his editors. I don't, I don't know. Um, but it seems like I, I, can't, I can't imagine Rolling Stone would want to go down the kind of Greenwaldian um, uh, left, we leftist um, kind of route. I think that that's probably not their preferred business model. Uh, and, and understandably, though, you know, I mean, I, you know, look. It, it, 
it, it, we're in a strange situation, right? Where, where, um, you know, I find myself as a writer, like I, there are things that I'd like to talk about, obviously, you know, like the DNC and some of the issues with the party and, um, you know what I mean? But I think that at the moment, like, you, you, you know, you also have to ask what kind of time you're in at the moment. You know, there's a context, like what stories are you focusing on? And everyone has a bias. Like, it's, you know, we can just, I think, say that everybody has some sort of political bias, right? And and I think that everyone should just put this, say, look, this is my political bias. I acknowledge it. I write from this particular perspective. Um, it's sort of, we feel we're in a position now where, yeah, you can spend all your time highlighting Joe Biden's corruption, Biden's, you know, his cozy relationship with the credit card industry, and you can do all this stuff. You can, right? You can. If you're a judge, you can say whatever you want, right? You can do whatever you want. But I think that at, at, at this point in time, when you're you know, 10 weeks out from an, an election for a genuine fact, Yeah, so I, you know, I think you can choose where you want to focus your time and energy when it comes to your reporting. But I think when you have a genuine fascist threat, the White House, who's threatened to burn down America, uh, it might be an idea to focus on that. Just that's where I choose to 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 my time, uh, spend my time focusing on. Um, uh, and you know, I, I don't apologize for that either, but I think that in, in the sort of green world and Taibi world, you know, because you're not constantly bashing centrist leftists, you must be a sellout and you're part of the corporate media and you're a corporate shill and you're a neoliberal, um, p- establishment puppet or whatever it is you want to say, you know, fine. That's cool. Say what you want. I don't care. But I think what they're doing is incredibly irresponsible. At the risk of playing into their hands, can I take a jab at Nancy Pelosi as we close out here? <laughs> Go for it. So a couple of years ago, the Nancy Pelosi spearheaded uh, an effort basically to blacklist firms that worked with Democratic candidates who were challenging Democratic incumbents in Congress, which is just it's just a terrible idea because – you know, one of the big complaints about Congress is that we like we get these these people in there who, who are in there forever, right? We need new blood. So if the best firms want to work with, you know, an up and coming candidate, they should be able to do that with worrying having to worry about being blackballed by the uh, congressional Democrats. But Nancy Pelosi has made an endorsement in the Massachusetts Senate primary and she has endorsed the challenger, Joe Kennedy, who granted, yes, he's he's a young guy who's born in 1980. He is a Kennedy of the Kennedy family, and he's running against incumbent Ed Markey, who he is 74, I believe. But Ed Markey is an actual progressive. He co-wrote the Green New Deal legislation with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Cortez has endorsed him. She's cut an ad for him. The guy is legit. And here is Nancy Pelosi suddenly taking her own rule. Well, I guess it doesn't necessarily it doesn't literally apply to her because she's not like a consulting firm or a marketing agency or anything like that. But she's going to just step in to the, and go out of her way and endorse Kennedy to unseat Ed Markey. So 
quite a bit of hypocrisy there from Nancy Pelosi, number one. And number two, Kennedy, he is to like the right of Ed Markey in this election. And Kennedy, Kennedy really doesn't, he has no case for why he should run. If his name were, you know, Joe O'Brien, I don't think he would even throw his hat in the ring. But his last name is Kennedy, so naturally he thinks, you know, he's got this one. And thankfully, he's led in the polls most of the way, but Markey's turned that around. I think the last one had him up double digits, 15%. Primary election is in a couple of weeks, not even a couple of weeks. So hopefully Markey can pull it out despite Pelosi's uh, endorsement. And, you know, I don't think that's going to move the needle personally, I don't think. Uh, Massachusetts voters don't really give a shit what, you know, Nancy Pelosi thinks. You don't like Nancy Pelosi. Well, she has indicated that her next term is going to be her last term in Congress, and I think that's a good thing. I, I think, <laughs> I think. look, I, I said this before, I think it's time for a change in the Democratic leadership. You take the speaker, you take the majority leader, you take the majority whip, and all of them are at least 77 or 78 years old. And it's time, and you go to the Senate, and Chuck Schumer, he's like going to be 70 this year, I think. And Dick Durbin, he's in his 70s or close to it. And yeah, I know Ed Markey's 74, but like the guy is an actual progressive and he's willing to fight for causes that young people care about and the causes that actual progressives and liberals care about. And so that's okay with me. It's, and maybe that, that's a reason why Ed Markey has never really held a leadership position, either when he was in the House or since he's been in the Senate. In defense of Nancy Pelosi, all I would say is that I think that she's been an effective um, thorn in Trump's side. That's all I would say. But as for other aspects of of um, the DNC and her leadership there, yes, I you know I I, I hear you. Um, I I will say that I think she's been very very effective at uh, keeping Trump in check. She she's and because of her because and it's purely because of her massive experience. You know, and I think that that's been welcome. Perhaps in a post-Trump era, yeah, I think that might be. You know, it, it, it might be time for new leadership. I'll agree with that. I think. I think we maybe we we can we can find some common uh, some common ground there. Anyway, I think that's it for today. Uh, I would like to thank everybody for listening. Um, I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Uh, if you would like to subscribe and hear more. Um, please subscribe to the newsletter. You can do so on this article or in the email that you're reading right now. You can become a, you can either get a free membership to the banter where you're going to get all of our free articles or you can become a paid member. You get two month free trial. Uh, if you click on the button uh, that you see in the article, uh, you'll get, you can see that link and you can um, become a subscriber and try it out for two months completely free. Mike, is there anything else you'd like to add before we go? Louis DeJoy, where's my Amazon package? You Send it mo- now, please. <laughs> okay, and on that note, we'll see you next week, everyone.